Sam's going to come and uh, present to us today from John chapter 21. So thanks, Sam. Morning, church. We'll just start reading. Um, the passage today is John 21. Um, I'll start reading a, a, a short section, and then as I uh, speak about it, I'll put it in a little bit of context for you. I, I, I just want to read, uh, I'll talk about the whole passage a bit later, but I just want to read the section from verses uh, 15 to 19, because that's really our focus. This is John 21, starting at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Well, it's good, good for us to be here on this first Sunday after Easter. Um, and historically in church tradition, Easter Sunday wasn't the end of the celebration. It marked the beginning of a 40-day period of feasting to commemorate the time from Jesus' resurrection to his ascension into heaven. So welcome to the feast. My prayer today is that this time spent looking at this passage, which contains a feast between Jesus and the disciples, would be a feast for us. The passage that we're looking at today concludes our study of the gospel according to John. Um, and I, just as we did at the beginning, I want to remind ourselves briefly of John's purpose. At the very beginning, um, well, we know John is written very late, later than the other Gospels. Um, in the first century, at the end of the first century, probably in the decade of the 90s, which means a couple of things. One, John knows that Matthew, Mark and Luke have already been written. So he's taking a different approach. He's not giving us necessarily the same material. Uh, and number two, he's writing after the destruction of the Jewish temple and Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70 which is, I suppose, the global catastrophe in many ways of the first century. Certainly it was for the, for the Jews of whom John was one. And we see this, remember all the way back several weeks ago, we looked at that first chapter of John, and there's that wonderful verse, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelling is really pitching a tent. It's a, it's a reference to the Old Testament tabernacle. And John's trying to say Jesus is the true tabernacle, the true temple, the way in which God truly comes down and dwells with us. I give this reminder because at the end of John chapter 20, uh, he spells out his purpose once again. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen to that. Um, So in that sense, trying to show us that Jesus is the Messiah, John is doing exactly the same thing as Matthew, Mark and Luke, but he's doing it in a different time and for a different group of people. But what's strange about the passage in front of us today is that coming as it does after that little statement in chapter 20, it sort of sounds like John's already ended his book. Uh, And this story is a bit of an afterthought or a bit of an epilogue in some sense. But we know that it must tell us something about the kind of Messiah, the kind of Christ that Jesus is. And so it has value for us uh, or it wouldn't have made it into the gospel. So what's going on in this story? Well, let's look at the start of chapter 21. At this point, the disciples have seen the crucifixion of Jesus. They've seen his burial. Uh, He has risen, but he hasn't appeared to all of them. Peter has seen the empty tomb and he's heard the account of the women, as well as Mary Magdalene, who's, who's actually seen the risen Lord. But for Peter, we're told in Luke's account, Many of the disciples dismissed the women's testimony and it says of Peter that he saw the empty tomb and he went home marvelling. So this time that we meet the disciples in after the resurrection uh, but before that joyful, bold period in, in the book of Acts, it's an ambiguous time. It's a time of uncertainty. I can imagine that the disciples would have had many questions. Had Jesus' death meant the end of his ministry? What kind of Messiah was he? What do we make of the empty tomb? Now Matthew records that Jesus, via the women, had told the disciples, go to Galilee and there you will see me. And this story takes place in Galilee. The disciples have gone back to that site of their initial calling. And so no doubt some went gladly. Some were hoping in the resurrection. We're told some already believed. But others possibly might just have been glad to go home. Some might have been glad to put the previous few years of hardship and the disappointment of Jesus' death and perhaps the fear of persecution behind them. We're not told exactly what's going on for Peter, but I can imagine one of his questions might have been, well, what do I do now? The answer for Peter seems to be to return to what he knows, to to return to his life as a Galilean fisherman, because that's what the start of the chapter finds him doing. And yet on this particular night, to add to the disappointment of the arrest and death and burial of his Lord, he catches nothing. We can feel the sting of that disappointment because, of course, we know that this is not Peter's only brush with failure in recent days. Just a few nights earlier, he failed catastrophically as a disciple denying his discipleship, saying of the one he formerly called Rabbi, Lord, even Messiah, I tell you I do not know the man. This is surely the more serious failure. And I'm interpreting a little bit here, I'm reading this into the text, but as Peter toiled away, frustrated all night, I I think Peter was thinking about this. I, I suspect that he might have been burdened with this guilt. I very much identify with Peter in the frustration, in the disappointment. And I want to show you as we read through this story that as we track with Peter, we actually see God's grace unfolding. 
At dawn, a figure appears on the shore to offer some advice. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. You can imagine the eye-rolling of the disciples. It'd be a bit like if I saw Brad doing some work and uh, I stopped to give him some pointers on how to use the zero-turn mower. Who does this guy think he is? Now, we're not told how the disciples uh, responded to the instruction, but we're told they eventually did cast the net on the right side of the boat. And immediately, there was a miraculous, huge catch of fish. At this point, John recognises Jesus standing on the shore, and not to be outdone, Peter throws himself into the sea and strikes out for the shore. It's not a dignified spectacle, is it? This image of a fully grown, fully clothed man, let's not forget one who formerly walked on water, thrashing about in the surf... Uh, and then wringing wet, slowly making his way into the presence of his Lord. And yet I admire Peter's confidence here. Not just that sort of typical leader of the group confidence that we see in Peter throughout the Gospels, being the first to act, but his confidence in the mercy of his Lord. Even in the midst of his disappointment, even in the midst of his guilt, Peter knows that he needs to run towards Jesus and not away from him. I'm also struck reading this passage that this is not the Jesus of the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember with the voice booming from heaven, with the the clothes shining, with the brightness that made the disciples cast themselves down in, in fear. We see the same dreadful spectacle of Jesus, the conquering king, Uh, In Revelation chapter 1, John saw this vision. And Jesus very much could have appeared like this to Peter, but he doesn't. He appears as a very humble, a very human figure, standing on the beach, serving him a meal. Jesus never stops serving us. Grace is a word that we use so much in church. And it's so important that we do because if we don't think about grace, if we don't talk about grace, we're going to think that we need to work to earn God's favour. Grace means that, yes, we do enjoy God's favour, but only because he takes the first step. He takes the initiative. He reaches out to us when we had no hope of reaching out to him, when we still hated him. This story between Jesus and Peter acts out grace for us. Remember a few chapters ago, Jesus in the upper room with his disciples, washing their feet and him telling them, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but later you will understand. I wonder if Peter understands now. In this story, Jesus' invitation to Peter makes use of the practical elements of food, bread, and fish. And I want to think about this for a moment. There are few better smells, particularly to a hungry person, uh, than the smell of fresh baking bread. And I know Neil used to call this passage fish and chips on the beach. And there's something to that. There's something very familiar, there's something very accessible and intimate in this portrait of of Jesus sharing a meal with his friends. My own father has a theory that fish and chips are better the closer to the coast you go, uh, and 
certainly I have many fond memories of sitting uh, within view of the sea at Thoreau on the south coast eating hot fish and chips. There's something so ordinary about this simple act of sharing a meal, but it's worth celebrating, particularly in light of Resurrection Sunday just gone. The resurrection is not a metaphor. It's a bodily reality. If you are in Christ, and particularly, let me say, if you are suffering in your body today, if you are in Christ, you can look forward to a resurrection body like his. A glorious body, to be sure, and yet a body that stood on the beach, spoke with his friends, and and prepared and enjoyed a meal. Just as we celebrate the Lord's Supper with physical food and drink, I think the God who, who gave us a world which delights us in our senses, who gives us physical pleasure in his creation, is not going to give us a bodiless afterlife. The resurrection is good news for our bodies. There's more good news, though, and this plays out on a larger scale. I want to suggest that what Jesus does for Peter in this passage, he does for all of us in his death and resurrection. Let's look at verse 15. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. This is the moment. Jesus and his disciples have enjoyed this this coming together. Uh, They've shared a meal. And now Jesus addresses the elephant in the room. Peter, who boldly claimed that he could drink from the same cup of suffering as his Lord, eventually trailed at a distance and denied that he even knew him. Right now, he must have been squirming. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my sheep. Names are so important. And notice in this story, Jesus doesn't call him Peter. Again, if we go back to John chapter 1, we see Jesus first calling his disciples. And to Peter, he actually gives him the name Peter. That's the name Jesus gives him. He actually says, Simon, son of John, in that initial calling, Simon, son of John, I will call you Peter. So as well as this location on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, this use of of Peter's original name, Simon, son of John, is a parallel with that first calling. Peter has been set apart for a purpose. At the same time, there's a note of challenge here. Have you, are you really ready to follow me? Have you counted the cost? And of course, we know that for Peter, ultimately, uh, he paid the ultimate price of following Jesus. Jesus' threefold questioning of Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? is a public reminder of Peter's threefold denial, his failure to love Jesus as he should. Peter failed his test earlier. But the good news about the resurrection is that Jesus passed the test. And his is the only achievement that matters. 
Peter is convicted of his sin here, no doubt, but what is surprising about this passage from a human point of view is that Jesus doesn't demand compensation. I mean, what could Peter possibly offer to make good the loss? This little drama is a picture of what is possible because God himself has provided a lamb for the burnt offering. Jesus has made the atonement in his death and resurrection. In that most beautiful of Psalms, Psalm 23, we read, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Note the feast imagery again. Here, Jesus feeds his disciples when they had done nothing to deserve it. And in fact, when Peter deserved much worse. Instead, Jesus tells him, Go and feed my sheep. Feed them with the bread of life who has fed you. Call others to the feast. So where does this leave us? Well, I want to give three points of application. First, whether this is the first time you're hearing this or whether you've been hearing this all your life, come to the feast. As he does with Peter, Jesus lived and died and rose again to serve us. Not to give us anything that we want, but to give us everything that he has. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, come to the feast. Praise God that Jesus invites Peter back into intimacy with him. Praise God that Jesus came not to call uh, the righteous but sinners. Whether you're hearing this for the first time or you've been hearing it all your life, come to the feast. A second, a word about grace. Maybe I'm... This is, this is how I work anyway. When I feel guilt, I will repent. I do go to the Lord in, in prayer and I repent. Um, but I tend to want to spend more time feeling bad about it afterwards until I feel like I really deserve forgiveness, until I feel really forgiven. That's wrong. That's not biblical. Jesus doesn't tell Peter, I want you to keep feeling guilty about this for a week, a month. I mean, how long would be enough? We need to be convicted of sin and we do need to repent. And we do need to make amends if we've wronged others. But as we repent, we need to have confidence that the grace of God restores us fully and that that requires nothing of us, no payment whatsoever, only faith in Jesus and what he has done. If I could go back to the feast image, a guest at a feast does not go as a paying customer. A guest at a feast goes wholly dependent on the generosity of the host. Finally, for those of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus, there is an added challenge. If we've been identifying with Peter throughout this story, and I think we should, then we need to take seriously Jesus' command to feed my sheep. We have received God's grace in a saving way. And just as we need to eat every day, we continually need God's sustaining grace as we turn to him in a fresh way, as we repent every day. But that's not where it ends. We need to call others to the feast. We need to share this invitation with hungry sinners. Because the gospel is not for those who think they need it. Oh, for, beg your pardon. The gospel is not for those who don't think they need it. It's for those who desperately need it. We need to preach the gospel, but we also need to act it out 
in the way that Jesus does in this little drama on the beach with Peter? How can we use practical resources? How can we use food, friendship uh, to show grace to others and to bring others to the feast? Let's pray. Lord, there are so many times throughout the Bible where we see this this image of um, a feast, where we see Jesus calling people who don't deserve it out of your divine generosity and because your precious shed blood opens the way for intimacy with God. We thank you for this glorious reality. We ask that you would fill us each day with this food, this nourishment that we get from you. And we ask that you give us boldness and courage not to keep this to ourselves, but to open this invitation to everyone, knowing that you've instructed us to go and make disciples of all nations. Be with us now. We pray. Amen.